0: All right. Well, here we go with another episode where I have the great opportunity to talk with a, another accessibility practitioner. And today I am speaking with Gareth Ford-Williams. Hello, Gareth. How are you today?
1: Hi. Hi, Joe. I'm good. How are you, You good? Yeah,
0: it's all good. Um, in my home office on Vashon Island, which is near Blink's
1: Seattle headquarters. Where are you talking to us from? Uh, I'm from a small town uh, just north of Manchester in in the north of England called Ramsbottom. Uh, lots of play people have heard of it. and No one really knows where it is. But yeah, so we're up in the hills in the north of England.
0: All right. Well, I, I've been to Manchester, but I haven't been, been out to your <laughs> village yet, but maybe sometime <laughs> in the future. But uh, yeah, it's great to uh, have you on here and uh, a good place to always uh, start is if you could chat a little bit about what you're currently involved with for your work
1: uh so um after after a long stint at the bbc uh, i left um about 18 months ago nearly two years it's coming on to that, that sort of length of time now and uh and uh, i left to do a couple of things and i always like to have more than one project going on and uh, so i'm working with a group of uh, people from ex-Google and ex-BBCers um, who also have a, an interest in inclusive design data. Um, one of the things that I think we've always been lacking in is good uh, quantitative data. Um, that, uh, and so that was something that I never really got the chance to do in my job. It was something that I've, I've always been kind of very heavily sort of data-driven in a lot of decision-making areas. Um, and, uh, and and it was something that was missing, and so I thought, well, nice to do a project, and the project has kind of turned into into something much bigger now, which is great, and it's called Ably. It's ab11y.com, uh, um, and, uh, you yeah, know, so that's, that's nice, and at the same time, um, I'm also uh, working as a consultant uh, for a, a couple of companies as well uh, in the UK, one of them, very, very big company that's doing a huge piece of, digital transformation and they they said this is a huge opportunity and they've got literally hundreds of websites and uh, and they said we need to move the whole thing into new platforms we need to change everything this is the perfect moment to build accessibility in in a very meaningful and robust way how do we do that and so um yeah we're right in the middle of that it's a, it's a huge project and i'm thoroughly enjoying it
0: well, uh, so as someone who's uh, involved in uh, consultancy, uh, what is it like for you? Kind of on a a day in the life or a week in the life? Uh, I'm sure it changes around on projects, but are there uh, you know any certain uh, angles or themes that tend to uh, make
1: up most of your work? I I, I I'm not uh, I'm not a massive fan of of, of auditing. Um, I think auditing is something that i always i always try to avoid uh, if if anything else i think if you can build inclusive things rather than de- so design and build inclusion in from the start and build it right the way through your processes and make sure that the conversation happens right the way through product development and service development then there's no you don't need to you don't need to audit and and do stuff there's a lot of behaviours in organisations where they try and build things and then make them accessible and, and always at the, at the BBC we used, to, we used to have sort of certain mantras around things and we used to say we're not going to design things that disable people and we used to have a very kind of social model perspective of that and because you know when something's a concept go you know, when something's just an idea and we've got this idea for a new service or a new product everyone can access that because it's just an idea. And inaccessible, accessibility is a proactive thing if it's not checked. So every design decision you make, every technical decision you make, it can impact on someone if you don't sit and think about, you know, how how does this impact on, you know, sort of create barriers or exclusion around it. And so, you know, we used to we used to do all sorts of you know neat little bits and pieces. Sometimes we used to have some. Uh, <laughs> I used to find them funny. Um, workshops where we would actually own it, it, own um, exclusion. You know, if we're going to exclude, let's be honest about it right up front. We used to actually call it "Who are we willing to exclude?" and um, and we used to make a list. and uh, And it sounds odd, and it sounds like a, a sort of counterintuitive thing to do, but sometimes exclusion. If it's planned for is kind of meaningful. So one of the things we would do is say, you know, if it was a a news application. For the BBC News, uh, we would ask questions like, you know, are we building this for anyone who's under five years old? And people would say, no, of course we're not. And we're like, well, it's fine. We're willing to exclude them. We're not going to actively exclude them, but we're not going to design for them. And then we would start exploring more and more and more people is it are we building this for someone who's not got a mobile phone. Nope. They're on there and you can, or outside of the UK, it's geo locked and it's fine. And we would end up with a huge list and we are saying it's okay for all of these scenarios. We're not going to actively exclude them, but we're not, they're not within, you know, they're not focused for us as far as design is concerned. And now we're going to make a list of all of the people who aren't on that first list. You know, who are we talking about? Who gets a designed experience? Who are we going to think about right at the beginning? And we're going to try and avoid to it designing and building barriers in for people and and just understand that you know human beings are complicated things. Um we're all complicated. We all have needs. We all have preferences. Um, and uh, and we think about those from the outset. and And that was kind of always the way that we tried to do stuff. and And so the need for auditing is 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 massively reduced. And you're not thinking about it, although the outcome would be compliance, because compliance has some very sensible things about it, in, in it, but it's not an answer. And you're thinking about designed experiences, you know, and that's how you get sort of comparative and inclusive design. Yeah, I, I, we used to do all sorts of extra bits, pieces of the, the I'm kind of going off on a slide too here, but one of the things that one of the teams that I used to manage, um, was the, uh, assistive technology team at the BBC. I had a couple of, of teams in my portfolio, so accessibility, and, and I'll talk, I'll talk about some of that side in a bit, but, um, we used to, we used to look at in, you know, sort of internal systems in the organization. And, you know, your baseline is this, you know, sort of, uh, it's standards and guidelines and stuff. And you just think, yeah, you just do those, you know, it's like, um, Uh, Whether, you know, sort of you're buying furniture, you want to make sure that someone has tested it to make sure that it isn't going to catch fire, you know, and you have stickers and stuff on it. It says, yeah, you know, there's certain standards this meets, et cetera. And and you think the people we're buying from, if we're buying a system, they do that testing. We don't test their stuff. I don't go into IKEA and set fire to furniture to find out whether it will burn or not. IKEA would be very upset if I did. (laughs) <laughs> I don't need to prove to them whether their stuff is safe and accessibility was the same. But what we would do is we would always think about it from a user experience point of view. So if I it takes me five minutes to do a task on a, on a system and it takes someone else who's got different needs and uses different assistive technology, if it takes them 15 minutes to do the same thing, even if it's compliant, we would ask the question, where do they find the other 10 minutes? you know, in their working day. And, and, you know, do they take fewer or shorter breaks or do they work longer hours? What's the expectation? Are they supposed to be less productive? Even though they're, they're, you know, equally as, as competent as I am in their, in their role, you know, why would they, why do they have to be designed out of, of opportunity? And then when you look at, you know, the hundreds of internal systems, you know, how, you know, that, that suddenly becomes bigger and bigger in an a, um, exercise, but, for me, it's always about experience and, and experience design first, um, and and thinking of that in in an inclusive way. I think I've gone off on a massive tangent there. I'm sorry about that. Jack.
0: <laughs> I yeah, think it kind right. of explains
1: I, a little bit about my ethos.
0: Yeah, no, that that's great, and it sounds really progressive, and and we have had. Um, others on here with experiences uh with with the BBC and it, it seems like uh, an organization that was uh you know always thinking about uh this area you know in yeah. depth uh you know we could talk more about the uh you know that that experience uh but I also like to kind of go back in time and and help identify you know where in our live life or work life uh, we first are aware of accessibility it's different for everybody and then kind of uh you know what what often comes after that for us is uh how we and when we decide to make that part of our profession yeah. so uh kind yeah. of when did it start with you where uh, you realized there was something going on here that
1: you that you wanted I, to be uh, involved with i'm going to turn the clock back to 1971 uh, which shows my age um i was two years old so at two years old we moved to manchester where, where where we where we lived and, and um my dad took on a job um for managing um sorry uh, sort of headmaster of a of a school and it was a school called Ewing School. It was in South Manchester. It was a residential school. So the kids lived there during the week. And they were small ones, very small children, sort of from aged four came in from the day. But I think, I can't remember the age, but there was over a certain age, they, they, they lived there for the week. It was, they had dormitories and, and rooms and stuff. And all of the kids there, Ewing was a really, really progressive school. And all of the kids there were aphasic. So they all had language disorder and communication disorders we had kids there that were um, autistic lots of different types of syndromes and complex needs and disorders and stuff and and that was my home you know we lived there we lived on site we lived on a little flat above the school and uh with and the stairs went through the school to our you know and it's where I lived it's where I played they were my friends I grew up there it was an absolutely I see it as an enormously privileged experience um, to grow up in an environment like that and um, I mean sadly uh, my dad um, passed away just before Christmas and we, we've just had the funeral and lots of those ex-pupils came and I met all of these people and we were like we haven't seen each other since we were 11 or you know <laughs> or, or eight and things like that and it's it's just absolutely wonderful meeting all of these, pe- uh, these people again but um it was a it was a proper family. It was an extension of of the family where we grew up, and uh, you know there were three sign languages spoken there. There and it was fantastic, and it had lots of connections with other schools as well. There was another one. There was Shawbrook. I always get Shawbrook and Shaw Grove mixed up, but there was a one for cul- culturally deaf and severely he- hearing impaired children. The other one was for blind children, which were nearby, and they used to do swaps and you know sort of all sorts of uh, wonderful wonderful uh, sort of. Collaborative work between these schools and between, uh, you know, which was which was great for the time and and I think it it was just one of those things. It was just part of my life and I got involved in various different arts projects because I ended up as an art student. Uh, I I wanted to be a painter and um, uh, and and that was all great. And then finally one day I decided I need to get a proper job and get my hair cut and (laughs) I grew up a bit um and uh and became a parent ended up working in advertising agencies and design agencies and and then joined the bbc's eventually I went into marketing and joined the bbc as a brand manager and uh, had this wonderful title of brand manager north and um and I looked after the north of England and and the output that was that was there and uh and literally had a chance meeting with um, a chap who is called Tony Aggie, who runs uh, digital now at New York Public Library. But at the time he met, he was running bbc.co.uk. And we had a chat about this. It was just one of those things There's like my youngest at the time, I think it was six years old. At the time, Zach, Zach Ford Williams, he's, um, he's now an actor. Um, so this was about 2004, if I'm right um, in my head. So he was about six, five or six. And uh, and I said, look, you know, he's got quadriplegic cerebral palsy. And I said, look, you know, you've you've got these actually some really good stuff for motor disabled children in the in this one website, CBeebies, which the BBC brand for the under sixes is CBeebies. There's a TV channel and it's all programmed for the under sixes. And then you move into um, which is for six to twelve. and. There was nothing he he was, there was virtually nothing he could access. And he was make, making that progression. I was like, brilliant. You know, I'm a brand manager. You just built a relationship, you know, a brand relationship <laughs> with someone. And now you just dropped him age six. How is that? Why, where is the consistency? Where is the thought around how we do this? And we ended up having a chat about it. And, uh, and he was like, no, we know it's a problem. Just nobody's got a plan. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I, and I was really surprised because I mean, the BBC's got this enormous history around inclusion going back to the 1930s, where it helped establish a, um, a charity called Wireless for the Blind, which was making literally wireless sets in the 1930s for people who were blind. And uh, and then it invented InVision signing um, in the 1950s uh, with programming News for the Deaf and then children's programming called Vision On for culturally deaf children. Um, it's purely because one of the TV directors best friend was culturally deaf and he couldn't access television. So he just s- stood a signer next to the news presenter and bingo, we we had a, an access service invented and they, they launched and well they invented closed caption subtitling for broadcast in the late 60s and early 70s and launched the first broadcast access services in the late 1970s nationally uh, for closed captioning and uh, and then built the first audio description production systems in the 90s uh, for broadcast, which it shared with lots of other broadcasters. And and I was like, you've done all of this, and yet, what's going on there? And uh, yeah, I wasn't after a job, but they they turned it into my problem. <laughs> they were like, well, you seem to have an idea, and I was like, I, you know, I'm, yeah, and uh, and, and yeah, literally, they they kind of gave me that. They said. The board of directors ended up giving me permission to start a small team up and i said we've just got to start with people and start understanding what what our audience needs are and go and talk to people and and find out what we need to do let's not treat this as as a, an exercise in compliance let's treat this as an exercise in you know sort of um in quality as far as user experience for audiences is concerned you know people are paying a license fee which is the thing that funds the 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 bbc in the uk and they should expect the same amount of value as everyone else and no one argued with that there was never a, i never had to sell it in and uh and it was great and we we started with a a little project there was a thing that they were prototyping and they just said we well, start with that clean slate in the corner you can do whatever you like discover stuff there that'd be your petri dish for accessibility and then we'll capture it in guidance and guidelines and practices and push it out to the rest of the organization and that project became known as BBC iPlayer and so it all started in the world's first FOD service became it was accessible from launch we did everything engineered it all in, got all of the access services work, working from day one um, And uh, and yeah and everything we learned we just scaled and scaled and scaled and started a champions network to make sure that accessibility is discussed in every sprint and every planning session and it's never let go and just built it up as cultural practice and yeah thoroughly enjoyed it i mean always the biggest challenge was you know scale for me it's an enormous organization with you know a massive audience internationally it's i think internationally their audience is about half a billion users a week and um it you know and and I think only the Google homepage is bigger than the BBC in the UK. And um, it's roughly the same size as Facebook in its user base. And so iPlayer has 1920 plus million users a week. And and so that was always our biggest our biggest thing was, was scaling these things up. But it just sort of happened. You know, it was one of those. I never set out to do this. It's just sort of stars aligned along the way. And I'm always up for going, well that looks like an interesting path to go down. And that's, that's how I've, I chose (laughs) what I've done over, over, over the years. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, It's been challenging. Um, And, uh, but yeah, I've loved it. It's a, it's a hell of a, hell of a career choice.
0: Well, yeah, I appreciate you uh, sharing some of your uh, personal uh, stories there. And uh, also it's great to uh, get that, Uh, that wikipedia level uh (laughs) summary of what the bbc has been involved in uh, oh yeah i mean i was standing
1: i was standing on the shoulders of giants i mean this is the way i felt when i turned up and just said this is this organization you know cares it doesn't need to you know it, it doesn't need a business case for this it just turns around and says we inform educate and entertain everyone and any organization that has all or everyone in its mission statement has to do accessibility or it's caveating those words. It's saying, accept them. And and then when you point that out, you just say, so, you know, you're saying all, but not them. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, then then we're doing accessibility. You can't filter people out in uh, from the word all or every words, all or everyone, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just it. It's great.
0: Well, from uh you know being involved in uh, accessibility for so long you've probably you know seen a lot of uh, you know several different cycles. you've probably seen uh, certain ideas come up and fade away and new ideas come up and fade away and and so do you have any thoughts uh, kind of looking back and seeing where we are today of uh you know maybe areas where you think uh, things have been, Uh, very successful or uh, you know on the other side of it areas that uh, you wish things maybe had moved along faster uh, things that you uh, kind of looking in the future that you think maybe are ones that we need to uh,
1: emphasize uh, in our our own practices moving forward I think there's a whole areas I mean this is the nice thing is we've come a long way and we've got a long way to go because you know we're, we're constantly dealing with a moving problem and and this is the thing i i find fascinating about it you know technology is progressing and what we understand about um people is progressing continuously people are wonderfully complicated which makes design interesting you know if we were all the same it would be so boring um and uh, and you know and, and and you see this kind of reflected in practice and people ask good questions. You know, I'm constantly fascinated and listening. I'm always listening into other people's ideas and other people's, you know, the questions they're 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 pushing out there about about the human experience of of products and services. And and you've got to treat things in a way that you know you understand the impact of what you do. So, for instance, with games accessibility. Um, we started out the BBC for children, and I think the BBC was the first ever games publisher to have accessibility guidelines. Um, and But the way that we looked at it, because we were doing with children's games online, is the way it was positioned was around social currency and exclusion. It, it was about inclusive gaming rather than building games and building accessible games. And it was a cracking guy I met there from the early days called Ian Hamilton, who you probably know is kind of like one of, the, one of the gods of games accessibility. And we worked together on the first set of guidelines. And the way that we positioned it was, you know, children were, were being integrated into mainstream more and more and more. And and games are a social currency to children. And if they can't all join in in the same game, they then can't join in as the conversation around it. And then they're exclu- excluded. We we end up designing in social exclusion by not making children's games inclusive. You you sort of sit that it's not about the impact necessarily on the individual. It then becomes the social impact on the group, you know, and you turn someone in a small way into an outsider within a conversation. And that's just not acceptable, you know, in any way, means or forms. You don't exclude children. Um, and uh, and so. You know, I, I find that more and more of the conversations seem to be going, which is brilliant, is going beyond, you know, sort of thinking about the individual's user experience and thinking about the impact. As the, the web is growing, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a destination for entertainment and for interaction. And it's a big part of our lives. And, and we need to evolve sort of out of the purely functional perspective of accessibility. You know, there's a lot to be ha- said for, um, you know, perceivable, operable, understandable and robust. But then you also need to have enjoyable and appropriate, and, <laughs> you know, and all those other things that come in. You need you need to balance, you know, the functional with the emotional. And the cultural and cultural accessibility is a really important thing, because I think these days, you know, the way that things are going, particularly on sort of entertainment and collaborative platforms and all sorts of stuff like that. If you don't get the emotional right, it doesn't matter how functionally accessible you make something. They're not coming back because they didn't enjoy it. You know, they didn't feel like they could contribute. They didn't feel like they were involved. They didn't feel like they were reflected within it and so I think the you know accessibility has is and you're starting to see it in the new legislation which is being discussed words like enjoy are finding their way into 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 this because they're so important um I don't think you'll ever enjoy a tax return but you know if you're still there's still an emotional thing that you shouldn't be more stressed than everyone else because you can't access it and you're worried if it, did i do it correctly did i not because of the way the form was built there's still emotional attachments and and there's emotional attachments to brands you know and this is that whole thing is this becomes the brand experience to things should work in whatever modality and whatever way that you want to engage with that you know whether it's a an audio only experience a visual only experience Whether it's an experience that's tactile, whether it's an experience that's multi-sensory, doesn't matter. The brand experience still needs to be all pervasive into whatever mode it is. And it needs to be equivalent emotionally. And and that's the bit that fascinates me, the way that, that we're starting to wake up to this.
0: You know, just uh, kind of looking forward, last question I had for you is just if uh, there are any particular activities you're looking forward to yourself, any uh, new technologies or or skills that uh, you still want to learn about, uh, lately, <laughs> what are the next uh, six months or year look like oh, for you?
1: I've got so many hobbies. The, the great thing I think about accessibility, and I think if you, you're a proper accessibility nerd, is if all of your hobbies are pretty much accessibility as well. Um, and uh, I, I do so many extra projects and bits and pieces out. I'm a, if anyone who knows me, font accessibility is one of the areas that I'm fascinated by because fonts are so complicated. You know, this whole redactive thing of serif versus sans-serif and the rest of it, which doesn't actually it doesn't bear witness to, there's nothing, no evidence that that actually works because fonts are a part of, so, there's so many different aspects to them so many different things that impact on readability and legibility and I've been nerding out in that space since like sort of about 2009 um, and there are other people who know a lot more about it than me. you know I, I, I'm a good friend of mine Bruno Marg I always turn around he's got 30 30 odd years on me in this area in the neuroscience of reading and I find that massively fascinating because we're so often dealing with reading experiences and and yet it's such a foundation of accessibility and yet it's an area of unknown. Um, and uh, or at least you know uh, there's so much exploration to be had so I, I finding that fascinating I'm, I'm absolutely loving what's happening in the games industry and uh, the games industry has accelerated accessibility beyond anything else in any other digital or non-digital industry they've gone from zero to incredible it, it almost it feels like overnight and, um, and I'm constantly learning from you know organizations from as diverse from, you know, so sort of obviously the Xbox side of stuff through to, you know, the PlayStation guys through the big platform stuff and what they're doing, which is all brilliant to the Ubisofts and the Square Enixes et cetera, and what they're doing and Sega, etc., cetera, how they're engaging and the ideas they're coming up with because you're dealing with far more complicated things. And I was doing some work with um, Miro a while back and, you know, and they were really struggling with their approach. And uh, you know, and they're a big, op- almost like an open-world game collaborative platform. They're not a website. You can't apply web guidelines to something that isn't a website and doesn't behave like a website. And so we immediately started looking to the games industry and saying, how are they dealing with this? You know, there there are more and more you know sort of accessibility happening in open-world games and platforms. So how can we bring this into working collaboration? How do we transpose those ideas? into a working place because it's a similar idea. It's a similar space. So I've, you know, there's, there's all these different aspects and, but the one that that fascinates me the most out of the, the areas and it's the sort of the biggest project that I've been working on with, with a whole group of other people is is data, you know and we have to get better at understanding the impact of what we do. I'm a massive believer in accessibility benefits everyone but I'm really, really, really dying to find ways of proving it and 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 bringing that to life because i think once we once people realize the benefits of inclusion beyond you know don't not thinking about it as worthiness and not thinking about it as benevolent which kind of makes it struggle a bit but bringing it into the into the perspective of worthwhile and understanding it's worthwhile for all of us to do because you know it 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 enriches all sorts of things from services to organisational culture, to to society. You know it, it and and it opens up opportunity for organisations. You know it's uh, in so many ways around reach and engagement, and we can talk about not just sort of medical. Um, impairment but we think about talk about start talking about situational impairment and environmental impairment and start really opening up the social model within design um it suddenly becomes much more fascinating but data i think is the key to this and that's the thing that we need to get a lot smarter at um to be able to you know tell the story of accessibility
0: well, you've uh, given some uh, th- three great categories of things for us uh, to think about. And in the, in the one with fonts is uh, definitely one I hadn't thought about. But uh, it's been a, a pleasure to uh,
1: chat with you, Gareth. I, I appreciate you. you taking the time to uh, talk with me today. Oh, it's absolute pleasure. It's, it's my favorite subject, and I will talk all day. <laughs> to anyone about it. Uh, I think it's it's a fascinating area and and it's all just about people, you know, and and you know what what a better thing to be to be interested in. Well thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank you so much.
0: Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design. We can move existing designs to development in a sprint. And maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X dot com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.